Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick. And today's guest is Paul Hawken, who is an environmentalist, entrepreneur, author, and activist who has dedicated his life to environmental sustainability. Hi, Paul. Hey, Nikki. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. You have quite the extensive background. You've appeared in numerous media, including Today's Show, Talk of the Nation, Bill Maher, CBS. Like, you're everywhere. You have the most incredible books that you've dedicated your life for, to bring this information to all of us to help us as a society just learn more about our climate crisis. And I know the current book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, was the sequel to Drawdown. So I'm excited about just talking to you about everything. I know that you basically coined the term Drawdown, and now we hear it everywhere. So yeah, I have many questions. Like I said, I have two kids. It's something I think about all the time, just what world I'm leaving my children and what I want them to take from learning about life and where things come from and how we can be kinder to our environment. There's so many people that have different opinions about what's going on, but I think at the end of the day for me and for what we do here at The Fullest, the idea, it just goes back to just being kind to each other and kind to our environment and kind to this one planet that we've been given and have the honor of inhabiting. So you know, I think no matter what our belief systems are, I think at the end of the day, that's the least we can do. And so, yeah, I'm excited to get started to have this conversation and to have you on. And I think when we think about climate crisis, the first thing that comes to mind is fear. And in this world of so much fear, in particular, this subject, climate fear, it's super reassuring and empowering to have your voice. That's one of intelligent and action-oriented optimism. So I'd love to just hear more from you about how you've gotten to this place and also learn more about your personal and professional journey that led you to this worldview. Thank you, Nikki. And I think your analysis of what we need is spot on. Um, It's simple and it manifests itself. That is kindness, uh, caring. Uh, manifests itself in so many beautiful uh, ways that are needed right now. Um, Care to me is synonymous with regeneration. And uh, you have two children, you have a small six-month-old daughter, and you care for her, of course, but that is regeneration. And so regeneration is something that's really innate to being a living being, a human being. (laughs) It's innate to a tree and to a deer and to everything else on this beautiful planet. And um, that's why I think the word is very apropos. The fear that is so present in our world today is really created by several things. One is, of course, for those who understand um, the science and are literate uh, about global warming, the fear and apprehension is understandable, you know. And um, at the same time, we live in a petri dish of fear, if you will, uh, fomented by politics. And our political systems all over the world are based on making you afraid. And so if you really parse the rhetoric that's being used, 
um, by politicians and the accusations and the slings and arrows and the falsehoods and mistruths and lies uh, that are being shared, what's their purpose? Their purpose is to make you afraid, whether it's Mexican rapists, which is what Trump started his campaign of, off with or all the way up to today. And so we see that manifest in Europe, in the Ukraine invasion, uh, and um, the use of fear as a political weapon, as a political tool. And so <clears throat> what I'm saying is we're all, in a sense, uh, in this, you know, surrounded by it when we uh, turn on the media, when we read the newspaper, when we read our digital media and so forth, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's about fear, 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 fear. It's going to the amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of the brain that's there for a really good reason. Because <laughs> um, fear is a, a good emotion. It's not a bad emotion. And just like stress and anxiety are good emotions too. And good, what I mean is that they're there to tell you something. And so we got wired for those emotions. And that's why we're here today, because we use them, you know, to defend ourselves, to feed ourselves, uh, to think about our futures, to plan, um, to create warmth, food, etc. And we use it for many other reasons, which are not so good. But the point is, we're at a nexus now where you have this dawning realization uh, that the planet is warming. And most people think, so what? You know, sounds good. Um, and the understanding that warming uh, changes the relationship between the jet stream and the oceans, you know, the ocean currents and jet stream. And that is the creation of climate. And climate, of course, is expressed by weather. And in heat, cold, you know, uh, flood, drought, ice. I mean, this is weather. And what we're seeing, I think, and especially in the last year, I don't know if you noticed it as well, um, but I feel like last year, because of many reasons, primarily fires, but that's not all the floods in Germany and, and uh, the cyclonic well, cyclones in the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, that I, I think it changed from being a concept, you know, uh, climate change, what people use that term, I, I don't use that term, but uh, global warming, climate disruption, uh, global weirding really uh, is what we're seeing, uh, became experiential. And if it wasn't directly experiential, it was vicariously experiential. You knew somebody who was dislocated, whose house burned down, whose you know, home or business was flooded or, you know, somebody who died uh, because of it. And, and and so that's the shift we're seeing in the world. And it's a good shift. It's too bad that it's occasioned by tragedy, uh, which it is. And uh, but at the same time, that fear is coming up to um, the fore with respect to climate, not that it wasn't there already with COVID. Uh, as a you know the pandemic we've been living for fear for two years for the, because of the COVID pandemic, um, and so like I say we're in a petri dish we're in a broth of fear, and what's important to do for all of us you know young and old in in everybody in between is to sort of parse that to just like let's make distinctions here, and what I mean by that with respect to climate is that the science is extraordinary the science is impeccable, but rather than turn away from it, you know, and become numb 
or say, well, there's nothing I can do about it, or I hope they do something, or even in some cases, people around the world denying it, which is just another form of fear, really, that it's to honor it, honor it, and to say, yeah, this is really, really amazing science. It's the biggest uh, collective scientific endeavor in human history. It's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, very collaborative, very cooperative, um, and brilliant. And like science all the time, and all, it's slow, it's not accurate, it just keeps moving to greater understanding based on real data. We say at Regeneration and at Drawdown 2, in God we trust, all others bring data. And so the data is overwhelming, and, but it's important not to be overwhelmed by oneself. Uh, and really, anecdotally, I'm working with the, one of the big universities here in California, and 70% of their students are, are panicked, anxious, worried, depressed about climate. And when I was told that, I said, I'm more worried about the other 30%. <laughs> <She's> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, they got it right. But the thing is that they're in a university, which is a fantastic science university, and they're just being just infused with the science of what's going wrong and how fast it's going wronger than what's expected and et cetera, you know, and they're good. They're, they're bright and they hear it and they see it, and they read it and they're taught it. And so great. That's the probability of what's going to go wrong. But we have to draw a bright line and say, thank you for the probabilities. Thank you for the science. Thank you for the forecast. Thank you for the projections. Now, let's go to possibility. Because that's what these students are not being taught. And talking to them, and there's 30 some odd thousand of them at this university, what they said was that we want to learn things that will take us to professions and, and activities that will make a difference when we leave. We don't want to learn to be something and to get something and to get a degree and get a, even a jo good job that actually doesn't really affect our futures. And good point. And so we're working with that university to create a, a, a regeneration institute, the first one in the world. But the point being here is that we have to do that all over society, all over the world, which is got it, thank you, science, and we'll, we'll keep listening for the updates. Now, let's get to work. And because every problem is a solution in disguise. Otherwise, it would not be a problem. I mean, that's just the fact. Why is something a problem? And why is something not a problem? You know, and so if your favorite team won, you know, a game or lost a game, if it lost the game, it's not a problem, you'd be disappointed, but that's not a problem. It's over. It's not a, you know, yeah. there's no solution. But climate is just redolent with extraordinary solutions. That's amazing. I love that perspective. And I, yeah, because I think that, I mean, the idea of drawdown and the idea of re regeneration, they're both solutions, right? Like drawdown, where I'm assuming you're talking about sequestering carbon, right? Well, yeah, drawdown means technically that first time when greenhouse gas and greenhouse gas emissions peak 
and go down on a year-to-year basis. That's drawdown. It's a technical term. I didn't coin it. I resuscitated it from the depths of uh, climate literature because it wasn't being used. Yeah. And the reason I did that, Nikki, was that even to this day, but certainly back in 2001, when I first came up with the idea, people were talking about fighting, tackling, you know, and uh, climate change and mitigating. And that was my favorite one, mitigating. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, net zero and so forth, you know, and I thought these are not goals. These are verbs. You know, net zero is a threshold, not a goal. But fighting, tackling, mitigating are verbs. Verbs are not goals. It's like running is my goal. Really? I mean, are you Forrest Gump? What are you? I mean, so, but you could say, well, the marathon is my goal. I want to finish the marathon or I want to win the marathon. That's a goal. And so what is our goal? And to me, if you don't name the goal, fat chance you're going to achieve it. So Drawdown was about naming the goal. And interestingly, I think given where we are this week or this past week, um, it was occasioned or brought forth within me by uh, 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, uh, somebody, uh, a neighbor, I didn't have a TV, said, come, 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 come quick, come. And I went over there and I watched the second tower go down live, you know, on TV. You know, just it's so surreal to watch a plane just, you know, fly directly into uh, a skyscraper, the World Trade Center. And afterwards, everybody I knew was so shook up, you know, sort of like what's happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And like, just like confused and why and how, and this doesn't make sense and all that sort of stuff. And I was just like everybody else. And I knew then that the world had completely changed. I knew, I mean, that's what I believe. And the question is how, I didn't know how it had changed. Okay, and how it would change. But I did know, or I did think, what am I gonna do for the rest of my life, given that the world has changed? And I looked at this airplane hitting the World Trade Center, and I looked at it from an archetypal way, um, which is, it was the concentration of power, fossil fuels, jet A fuel, right, hitting the greatest aggregation of financial power in the world at that time, which is the World Trade Center. And that the amount of not only money that had accrued to those countries and companies uh, that have drilled, extracted, and grown so forth over the years, uh, you know, was basically powering politics, policy, corruption, Etc. And so to me, the problem, I saw the core problem then as concentration of power. Yeah. That is, uh, fossil fuels being the driver of that, you know, whether it's, look at today, I mean, Bolsonaro, you know, look at Putin, you know, look, I mean, yeah, exactly. look at, Ma, Ma, yeah, Maduro's, you know, in Venezuela. I mean, look what, uh, look at, you know, Salman, you know, and in, in uh, Mohammed bin Salman in, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, look at these people. I, I don't even want to call them men. Uh, and, and, and what they do and what they think and so forth. So well, that was true then. So that's a concentration of power. And it's fueled by money. And money is fueled by our use of fossil fuels. And so what I decided to do then was to do whatever I could to make the science of climate change and the solutions uh, that are afforded by our understanding of climate uh, accessible, 
understandable to people because people didn't know what to do and didn't even know what the solutions were. And that was the origin of Drawdown uh, initially. And so we're in the same situation today, which is Putin wouldn't be doing what he was doing if he didn't have $600 billion in reserves, you know, from selling oil. I mean, he'd be, he'd be doing something internally, you know, taking care of a country that doesn't actually work very well at all, you know? And, um, and so we are in the same situation where we need to regenerate our entire energy system and move it away from control and concentration of power, capital and political power, uh, to decentralization, to, you know, energy that is created everywhere in the world by sun and wind and other things possibly going forward uh, so that nobody controls the energy. Nobody is becoming multi-mega billionaires or accruing political power because of the sale of energy. And that is what the solutions that are uh, uh discussed, you know, and shared in Drawdown and Regeneration are about. There's much, much more to that than just energy, but that's at the very crux of it, you know, since 80% of our greenhouse gas emissions are from the combustion of coal, gas, and oil. And so even, not even, but I'm proud, my wife who, who likes the house warm, I keep turning the thermostat down, and she said, um, uh, let's turn it off, we're using natural gas. Now, I was very proud of her. She said, let's do it. Let's just stop using it, you know. And we just have heat pumps, actually, we're installing that actually get rid of all natural gas. So they're just a few weeks away, but they're installed, but a few weeks away from being turned on. But the point being is that, and Bill McKibben has made this point very, very eloquently uh, recently, which is the way you stop Putin's is to stop buying gas and oil. And that's what the world has to do ubiquitously all over and as soon as possible. If we want to change the political system that's in denial of the climate crisis and that isn't paying attention to the crisis that your daughter is going to inherit rather than she's not going to inherit a political problem in Eastern Europe. She's going to inherit a problem caused by the combustion of fossil fuels and the abnegation of the understanding that we are destroying life on earth, not just by the combustion of fossil fuels, but by an extractive economy that takes life and harms life in every supply chain in the world. And I'm so curious what you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned wind and solar. And I'm, I know that it's, when it comes to regeneration, do you believe that those are the best forms of regenerative um, energy sources? I know that you know there are people that have um, electric cars, and and that whole situation is really interesting to me. I used to have a Tesla as well, and I was a really big um, Tesla user or owner. Um, I had a really interesting situation that happened to me. So I got rid of it immediately um, because it was like a self-driving situation. It actually just like accelerated all by itself into a parking spot. And I almost, I was pregnant. I almost lost my child. Obviously that has nothing to do with the, you know, fact that it runs just off of um, 
being charged from, but it, it's still part of the electrical grid, which is still somehow consuming or still consuming fossil fuels, right? Right. That's you, You've raised a very, very good question. If we step back a little bit here and say, well, what do human beings need? You know, what is a civilized, you know, a civilization? Uh, yeah. What, what does it need? It needs mobility. Okay. It needs food. It needs healthy food. It needs warmth when need, you know, when the weather is uh, uh, cold, right? <clears throat> Shelter, warmth. Um, it needs education, health, and other things. Okay. But let's go back to mobility. So mobility to me is not in question. You know, human beings have been mobile for, you know, 60, 70,000 years, you know, I mean, in different yeah. ways. And, yeah. and now with the concentration of cities, actually, in some way, we need mobility less. It's, it's curious, you know, because actually we are creating pods or hives of people, you know, um, where you can access uh, what you need on foot, you know, much more easily than you ever could have 100 years ago. And and that's the 15-minute city. And Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, is creating that. And cities all over the world are doing that. Let's go back to the EV. So, yeah, EVs, if powered by renewable energy, uh, use much less overall energy, of course, but are non-polluting. And that energy can be sourced locally. You know, you can power your electric vehicle or your electric scooter, uh, if you will, um, from your solar on your rooftop or your garage or in your neighborhood. So um, so it doesn't have to be powered from the grid. And at the same time, there are people who, you know, maybe have lower income or in very concentrated areas of population, you know, uh, in big cities, you know, can't have solar on the roof. Or even if they did, it would be, you know, minuscule in terms of their needs. And so therefore you need solar farms or wind farms. So you're going to need concentrations of that kind of power relatively uh, to the needs of people there. Now, but the when we did the data on EVs and people were surprised that we said, well, we ranked them by impact and EVs didn't have a really big impact by 2050. And the reason for that is because the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is predicting that there'll be 2 billion cars in 2050. So that's just bizarre, you know? I mean, there's, what, nine and a half, ten billion 10 billion people there, so there's a car for every five people, electric I mean, that's just bizarre. And so we, I mean, Nikki and Paul, when we're talking, we're going, wait a minute, we have to reduce the amount of vehicles, period, and we have to change their source of energy. And uh, and so we have to do both. Uh, and then electric vehicles become interesting. You know, we need, we need ambulances. We need to go some places in a car. You know, we need to be in vehicles that are protected from the weather, snow, rain, or whatever, you know, in cities and places and so forth. The way we are, you know, way, the way we live now, the way we designed our lives and our cities. But to do that, we have to think of mobility as a human right. And that means um, electric buses, that means electric trains, that means uh, electric e-mobility. There was 200, no, 195 uh, e-mobility 
little companies two years ago. This is scooters, you know, and bikes and things like that. There are 750 e-mobility companies in the world today. And they're just going like crazy. And you see them more and more. So we're downsizing as well, you know, because we don't need, you know, a 6,000 pound car to take a 140 pound woman, you know, to the store. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or a 175 pound man, I don't care. You know, I'm not trying to be gender specific here. It's just like, it's nuts. And so we have to reimagine and redesign our energy system and what it powers both. And that's on the transport side. And um, so electrifying things is really a hugely important solution. We need to electrify the world and keep fossil fuels in the ground where they came from. Um, and so electrification can be done with current solar income, which is the energy that arrives in the earth every single day. We just need a tiny, tiny fraction of that uh, to power uh, the world that we live in today. So, okay, so that makes sense. And the, I'm, the questions that I'm asking or will continue to ask about this specifically is because I'm genuinely curious because I feel that on, so for example, there's the uh, electrification possibility, right? But then I'm I'm assuming it's the best way to reach drawdown, for example, would probably be just a variety of formats rather than just using fossil fuels. Then, like you said, it's coming from solar energy and then the solar, that's what the EV is using. But then wind, just using a variety, because when you think about making these wind farms or making these solar farms, like the, the consumption that's going to come from needing to create it, aren't we extracting a lot of materials to get there? And do we need to continuously replenish that? And is that nothing near the extraction that that's needed for fossil fuels? I mean, assuming it's a fraction of it, right? Right. And uh, uh, Antonio Machado has a phrase, which I love. It says, you make the road by walking. And, um, and so the way I look at that, and I support your query, by the way, or your concerns, you know, you're absolutely right. The question is, are we going in the right direction? Exactly. And yeah, and, and is it perfect? Absolutely not. Does it have impacts that we wish it did not have? Absolutely. Um, and but, or and, are there a bunch of people who care and are on it and are creating, inventing, you know, engineering ways to um, prevent that? you know, or to su better substitutes, you know, batteries that don't use cobalt, right, from the Congo, uh, lithium uh, from Chile or wherever else it's being mined from. Uh, and the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, what's coming? Because, you know, I don't know how old you are. You're in your 20s, I guess. The point being is there is a generation in their 20s and 30s right now that were born into this. You know, they were teenagers and, and then or younger. And then all of a sudden, they, not all of a sudden, but for whatever reason going, looked at the future and looked at the assumptions that are driving in and what was happening and where we were going. 
you know, like over the cliff if we kept going the same direction and asked this question, what were you thinking? You know, and this is to the ones, the boomers who are still alive. What were you thinking? And uh, it's not painting every a generation with one big black brush, but the point is a fair question. Well, these, this generation, and I don't want to label a millennial Gen Z, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's just, but this cohort, you know, I mean, it is so well-educated, so imaginative, so brilliant. And we don't hear about what's coming. We hear about what is. And we hear mostly, again, as I said, 90% of what we hear is about invokes fear because that is the greatest rate of click-through. If you have a digital display of information, whether it's Vox, whether it's the New York Times, whether it's RT, whether I don't care what it is, I mean, the, the click-throughs for things that cause fear or, or upset are you know 10 to 1 over something that's a good news story. And so... So we don't hear about this, but in terms of energy, yeah, right now we're in, you know, it's material intensive, but it's not as material intensive as fossil fuels. And it doesn't have a greenhouse gas aftermath. In other words, the materials like, you know, the glass or the aluminum, you know, for solar panels or the steel uh, and for exact, for that matter, the uh, rare earths or minerals used uh, in wind farms, you know, are definitely have a carbon footprint. No question about it. But nothing uh, as bad as the footprint we have right now from fossil fuels. A hundred million barrels of oil is burn are burned every single day. Hundred million barrels of oil every day. And so, so when we move to uh, re- renewable energy. And bear in mind, wind is solar energy too. That's what creates the wind, you know. Yeah. So both both are solar. They just capture it in a different way, you know, photons or current. And the question of regeneration, it, the, the, the proposal in the book and regeneration as a concept isn't like you can just step over the line and say, oh, I used to be doing degeneration, you know, degenerative things or things that called harming life. And now I'm cool. No, it's actually saying, can we just stop where we are and pivot? Because where we're going is the wrong direction. We can see the end of that road. You can see it. You wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking if you didn't see the end of that road. And so a road stops very soon. So regeneration is about, whoa, let's do a pivot. Can And it's a question. And I believe, obviously, the answer is yes. But the question is, can we create an economy that's based on creating more life instead of less? I mean, that's the question. Yeah. In other words, and I mean, we, we have that answer in regenerative agriculture. That's for sure. That's like, you know, ABC, you know, because we have basically adopted, you know, in a form of industrial chemical agriculture that basically destroys life, not just this life in the soil, but, you know, the pollinators, you know, the runoff from the water, the dead zones in the, you know, Gulf of Mexico and all over the world, you know, the fishery. I mean, you know, it just kills. And then not to mention the pesticides, you know, the herbicides, the fungicides. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's basically how do you kill to make more life? You don't kill to make more life. You make a commodity, but you've killed a lot more life than you created. And so so regenerative agriculture flips all those and reverses those. And that is GDP. That's, you know, gross domestic product too. 
-hmm. And can we do this with our homes? Yes, there's carbon architecture now where the buildings actually sequester carbon. And the energy that's used, you know, in those buildings is renewable. And there's, of course, there's passive houses which don't use any energy at all. <laughs> you know, and in cold environments in Germany, you know, in Switzerland, Denmark, you know, passive houses have no source of energy except the human body. And yeah, that's so incredible. So this is what's, we are on the crest, you know, on the threshold of imaginative, extraordinary breakthroughs uh, in terms of what we have taken for granted for so long and that yeah. is so damaging. Well, I think the reason, like I mentioned, I'm asking these questions and that was the perfect way of putting it is, it, are we in the right direction? Because obviously we know where we're headed, there, we can't go that direction, right? I mean, it is, then we have what, like I'm Zach Bush says, like, and many people say we have what, 70 years left if we're headed in that direction, if that, but at the same time, that's what, you know, natural gas, for example, that used to be something that everyone talked about all the time 10 years ago. And then now, like you said, you know, you're like, we're not going to turn that on. We don't need the heat. And obviously there's so many other solutions. I just like, there's ways to heat your floor, right? With water and heating it that way. Um, talking about electrifying, right? Using that for the house, you can heat your floors and then that's like radiated heated floors that then the heat moves into the rest of the house. So that's like more eco-friendly. So yes, like you said, there's solutions. There's there's the regenerative agriculture movement, which I love so much. And I've had the opportunity of spending time on quite a few farms that are farming that way. And I'm so passionate about it and sharing that with my children. But what I was going to mention and the reason why I was asking that is similar to like, for example, in the wellness world, there's so many incredible things happening. And I think let's take, for example, fashion, like we're all into recyclable materials right now. And there's so many activewear brands coming out, reusing um, recyclable materials. But at the same time, it's still microplastics that are still making their way into our water through the wash cycles and it's still being used for clothing. It's not even what in my belief is that what's good for the planet is also good for our health and vice versa. So like you said, the pesticides in our factory farming and our, um, our regular agriculture right now, it it's ruining not only the environment, but our personal health. And then also it's making its way into these alternative fuel sources that then are also now being like burning different biofuels that are grown with pesticides that are then being burned and putting more the glyphosate in the environment, right? So it's like that idea is there and it's amazing to use biofuels but then at the same time if we're growing it in a non-regenerative way that's a huge issue still um i guess my question is like how can we support or know how to support these alternative industries because that's important i definitely like you said to our generation I'm I'm actually 31, by the way, and, and I, it's really important to me. It's important for my children. It's important for everyone that I love and everyone on this planet. So how can we support and know that it's being done in a regenerative way, like you say? Because I think like you're saying, that's exactly what we want. Right. And I mean, 
um, you there's a, a lot of different things you brought up in, in that statement question. Um, working backwards to biofuels, biofuels basically are pretty stupid. Uh, and they don't do for for energy or the environment. And ethanol is extremely stupid because if you do the energy in and energy out, actually uh, it's a net loss of energy. Um, and furthermore, the corn is GMO corn, you know, um, that's, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, glyphosate related, but it's mining the soil to make corn, to make ethanol, to put in a gas tank for internal combustion engine, which is, you know, a, a car is only about 2% efficient, you know, in, in terms of energy. The energy that goes into a car, okay, moves you, you know, you weigh 100x, you know, whatever, 100 you know, 15 pounds, 12 pounds, whatever, I don't know what you weigh, whatever, to move 115 pounds, you know, to wherever you want to go in a car, um, I mean, you're using 100 units of energy and the efficiency is between one and 2%. And if that energy comes from bioethanol, it's just like, it, it goes, it drops further. And so this is the system we have today. You know, it is incredibly inefficient. And um, the bioethanol in Iowa and all is a political, uh, I don't want to call it, you know, it's basically entirely composed of politics. It's a subsidy to farmers in swing states for presidential elections. And yeah. you know, that's why. So you make a very, very good point. Now, there are places where, you know, as a transitional fuel, you know, you could use switchgrass or things, but that's marginal and small, and that's not the way to go uh, at all. Uh, we want our green waste, wherever it occurs, to um, go back to the land where it came from, you know, in the form of compost and mulch and different, or made into material to make, um, to take, you know, branches that, you know, are being made into phone books right now and, and made into toilet paper for Procter & Gamble uh, to create things that are, that are going to endure and last and make sense, you know, uh, for us for years and years to come. There is extraordinary new technologies coming out about the use of wood. I just wrote an introduction to Shigeru Bonds, the, the famous Japanese architect who's been using wood for 25 years. And, and just the interrelationship that we can have with uh, what's called Miyawaki forests, Miyawaki forests, which are extraordinary in the rate at which they grow and their diversity and their ability to produce selectively, regeneratively created uh, timber for centuries is very, very different than say plantation wood. But going back again to these issues, how you asked it, how can people know? That's why, that's why I did drawdown. That's why I did regeneration. I mean, and I say I did it. I didn't do it. I mean, I I gathered people, you know, researchers, and we did it together. Yes, I wrote it, but you know, I mean, somebody has to write the copy. But but it's it's really us talking to us. You know, it's a smaller we talking to we. You know, we have to know what to do. And your question is absolutely right. And so I think. You know, that's what we're trying to do. And then in regeneration in the website, the most important part of regeneration is not the book, it's the website. And uh, it's called Nexus, N-E-X-U-S. And th there we talk about the solutions and challenges, by the way. I'll get back to that. And we really say, look, at this is the call to action. This is what needs to be done here or can be done. 
this is what you can do as an individual. This is what you can do. This is what you can do as a neighborhood, a community, a family. This is what you can do as a church, as a community, as a city, as a company, as you know, a county in a governance institution. This is what you can do as a big corporation. In other words, here's a solution. But here's all the levels of agency in which it can be addressed, you know, in different ways or collective ways so that you as an individual do not feel like, you know, disempowered by somebody saying, oh, my God, you know, recycling plastic doesn't make a big difference. True, by the way. And uh, I use cold water in my washing machine. Great. But, you know, hello. Uh, you know, and you, 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 you you get this individuation of solutions and you know they're insufficient. You know that if everybody even did what you were doing, it wouldn't be enough, you know, and it kind of makes you feel bad in a way, you know, if you're, you know. Yeah. And you know everybody's not going to do them anyway. And so when you look at Nexus, you get a sense of, wow, and not only what you can do on all levels of agency, we give the examples, this group, this NGO, this city, this company, this corporation, this group, this church, this synagogue, this, this classroom, this college. And you go, wow, this is happening. This is, and I can connect to them and ask them how they did it, or do you want to share, or I can learn from it, or they have, a web, they have websites, obviously, and so forth. So it's really about how to get it done. And, and, and what we really encourage people to do is not to do anything out of guilt and, and, and a sense of fear, um, but to acknowledge the fear, you know, uh, but not to feel guilt and shame because that doesn't work either as a driving emotion. In this case, what works is what we love and what turns us on, what lights us up. What is it in this world that we just love to do or be involved with or learn more of or, uh, you know, work with others on? It, it, it's different for everyone. It can be, you know, everything from children to cheetahs, from wildlife to, you know, I mean, who knows? You know, each person is different. And the purpose of Nexus, or the challenges and the solutions find the one or more than one that you really love to get involved with that you love to do that you can do maybe you have expertise in this area find out who your colleagues are what people are doing around the world you know and then it then you're doing something because nikki the most powerful thing we can do to change our emotions and again these emotions are there for good reason Stress is an emotion telling you to act. It's not telling you to drink, okay? It's not telling you to drown your sorrows. It's not telling you to binge watch Netflix. Stress is there to tell you to act, okay? But the thing is, it's really important to act, to do something. When you do something, it literally changes your mind. It changes your beliefs. It changes your way of seeing the world and it changes other people's minds and beliefs as well. It's the only thing that works is action. And again, going back to individuation, we think, oh, I don't count. Yeah, you do. That's the only thing that does count <laughs> is individuals. Look at Zelensky in the Ukraine. Look at him, one person, right? I mean, amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah.
It's amazing. I mean, coming from a true entrepreneur and activist, I love that. I love, you know, that perspective of just doing something changes your mind because it's true. And in a world where, you know, people spent a year sitting on their couch watching Netflix, it's really amazing. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, Project Drawdown and Project Regeneration has clear plans of action. So can you share with us some of the cliff notes of what you think are the major issues? I mean, you addressed number one, especially with what's going on right now, is fossil fuels and yes. um, yeah. centralization of energy in that way. So can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, there's two ways to look at this, a macro and a micro way. Uh, let's start with the micro. Micro means, you know, is is a family individual or whatever, is a company, you know, a, a, a group of people or yourself. And if we have to reduce, uh, which according to the IPCC, the SR16, you know, jargon, sorry, but basically what science is saying is we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 45 to 50% by 2030. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Are you doing that? I, I, I'm not. I'm saying rhetorically, you don't have to answer. And so, <laughs> uh, 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 but we are, Jasmine and I are, and that's, and, but we can afford it. And so, what I'm starting to do is think about, well, wait a minute, why can't we all afford to do it? And why aren't there subsidies to do that instead of, you know, the, I don't know how many trillion dollars that go to fossil fuels every year, subsidies, subsidize. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're subsidizing what we don't want and penalizing what we do. And um, so it brought up, and by the way, our heating system is hydronics, it's water. And that's what we do. We heat water, you know, with a heat pump, you know, from the air. And so our hot water, and we put in an induction stove. We don't use natural gas to cook. The boom. And I can't wait to call my utility in a few weeks and say, hi, it's Pacific Gas and Electric. You know, basically the company that basically torched California for the last three years, you know, with their, yeah, exactly. with, with their power lines. Mm -hmm. and, and say, would you please take your gas meter off my property? I mean, I, you know, just like get rid of it, please. It's on my property. I don't want it anymore. Yeah. And, and so, so, but there's other ways too. I mean, I used to fly a lot. I mean, before COVID, I mean, embarrassingly so. And, uh, and so two things, one is that we're creating what I call a offset onset recipe book. <laughs> and it's like, and it says, okay, I, I mean, I've cut my flying back by 95%. Okay. But, but, if I have to take a plane, okay, not have to, but choose to, I do a 10x offset onset. And what I mean is like I sequester five times the amount of uh, carbon that's emitted by my flight and five times the amount of carbon protected in forest systems that would be cut down were it not for um, monies going whether it's Cameroon or whether it's Congo, or whether it's all over the world, you know, for tribes and cultures and people who are traditional forest dwellers and so forth and who are, are trying to protect their forests and they need support and they need help. And so I do 10X and and I'm going to give a recipe book. Some people might choose three, five, whatever, you know, it's not cheap. Uh, but 
either as the airplane ticket. And that's the real price of flying to me and right now. That's the real price. It's not just the, the fossil fuels, the jet A fuel. You know, you went to the airport. What about the airport? You know, what what is it emitting? You know, what about the way airport back to a hotel? What about the hotel? What about, you know, all that stuff? It's a big carbon uh, <clears throat> uh, experience if you leave your home and go to, you know, a city far away and stay there for a while and come back. And so... I'm doing that as well. Each person has to figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it. We're trying to provide tools and ways and means to understand that, you know, in regeneration on the website. And I, we're admittedly not there yet. We're working on it as fast as we can. We just uh, hired five more beautiful researcher writers and so forth and uh, gorgeous human beings. And um, we're working as fast as we can. Um, and we're working with Damon Gamow at 2040 and Clover Hogan, you know, in London with Force of Nature uh, and others, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, that's I like the way you phrased it because it isn't necessarily accessible to everyone which is unfortunate because we you know being kind to the climate to the world and living in a way that's more efficient and more more in a regenerative way unfortunately has become more expensive because of the way that the because like you said of the subsidies and so eating like we love force of nature right we love in our household like we don't use we don't use paper towels. We don't buy clothes that have microplastics in them. We um, live in a little suburb outside of LA, Corona Del Mar here in Newport Beach. So we don't have that much land, but we still have a little, we have some plant beds now. So we have a little area where we grow our own food to show our children where food comes from. And, and we do a lot of these things that Unfortunately, um, not that that's expensive to do to grow your own food, um, but there are a lot of things that we do that we know we have purchasing power to do that most people unfortunately don't. So I agree with you. I think that for us, the uh, what I say constantly is if you can, you must. And I think about that all the time. And that's how I um, run my business. We're um, on our way to becoming a certified B Corp. And if there is anything um, in terms of our carbon footprint, we do buy offsets and we want um, mostly glass and, and we're doing all these things. And I think that, um, like you said, it is changing. There's incredible technology. There's amazing things coming out. But I, I, I always ask myself, like, are we in go heading the right direction? And so having a resource like your book and like your website and everything that you're doing is so important because people don't know that biofuels are stupid or that ethanol is stupid and that that's not going to do anything for us. And I think um, it's on the in, in an individual way that we can make a big impact and collectively, but I always go back to like, what can the government do? How can we get the government to stop subsidizing GMO corn and soy and wheat and to stop, um, you know, using pesticides such as glyphosate and even more and to stop. I mean, I'm sure, you know, um, non-toxic neighborhoods and like we're involved with them as well, but what else can we do to, I mean, that's an, an incredible organization because they're going um, to each city and county and convincing them on the local level. 
but again, and New York now has like signed up, but again, on the, in private areas, you still have to. So what is your opinion on the government? Um, like, because on, in some, like you said, there's so much corruption. And I think that, um, I, I just like you, I don't know if you still don't have a TV. I don't have a TV in my home. I, I believe that it just like is indoctrinating and there's so much fear and there's enough media that I, you can just like open your phone or open your computer and be bombarded. So that's just like one way we don't consume. But I think that, you know, government can be very corrupt and it can be all just political and it could just be this idea of, oh, we're, we're wanting to do this because it's the right thing, but really um, supporting things that are still backed by Monsanto that are still backed by these big fossil fuel organizations. So I'm just curious how we can really push government to do the right thing and have them be part of this without feeling like this sense of full government control at the same time. Right. Uh, point taken. And when I said, you know, when you asked me, what, what should we do? There's micro and macro. So micro, we start to talk about, you know, what individuals could do. And there's much more, as you know, and you're doing it, you know, your family's doing it in terms of, you know, selection, clothing, glass, guard. I mean, you know, you're doing it. You understand that. Okay. And and I think a lot of people would do a lot more if they understood what they can do and how much better it makes their lives, frankly. 56% of emissions come from the top 10% of income earners. Okay. So... Uh, so those who are privileged, you're privileged, I'm, I'm privileged, um, have a huge obligation to take that to zero, not just to reduce. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Um, but I think if you, let's go back to government, then let's go back to the other, you know, 44% of emissions from the other 90% of the world. In Nexus, we talk exactly about that, which is influence. Influence is something you can do. You can influence on a local level. Sometimes the best way to change, you know, a stupid policy that's a macro policy is to change it on a municipal level or a county level or a provincial level or, if possible, on a state level, you know. I mean... Uh, and how do you change that by raising your voice? And then we have ac access to those organizations that are raising their voice louder, you know, or effectively or um, multiply. Um, so that's a very, very important part of Nexus, you know. Um, and um, so we don't we don't exclude that at all. You know, it's just that there's things you can do, you literally can do today, and then there's things you can do. Uh, that are affecting what others control in terms of policy subsidizes, taxations, rules, the building code, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, which is oftentimes uh, comes from corruption. And we don't see our corruption in the United States so well. We, we're probably one of the most corrupt nations in the world because it's not so obvious. Uh, but even the, you know, even the uniform building code, which every city uses and adopts and so forth, is created by the industry. It's created by the industry to make sure you buy and do as much as possible, you know, in your new home or, you know, your remodel to feed the industry. And so it's, you know, again, that's corruption. You know, the Monsanto's, the corporations, the, you know, what they're doing. This is interesting because they are doing it, no question about it, and they're going to continue to do it because they're like, you know, 
organized bodies of people come and go, but the thing still exists, you know, the company still exists and yeah. it has shareholders and, it, and most of the money that's in corporations is placed there by people who manage other people's money. In other words, the, the people running the corporation don't own it. They don't. The people investing in it, you know, from all these big pension funds and, you know, mutual funds and whatever, they don't own the money. They just work. They're employees trying to do the best they can, you know, to get their bonuses and all that sort of stuff, you know. So we have this strange economy where actually who's on first? Who's there? Who can I talk to? You know, I mean, the CEO, you know, works for the shareholders, you know. And I mean, if he or she doesn't, they get fired like Faber at Danone, you know, and they get fired. And and so if there isn't sufficient growth and profitability. Now, having said that, though, there are some interesting things going on, which is that I feel like corporations for a long time, and I was involved with it, and I saw it over and over again, were basically getting involved with, quote, quote, sustainability to get their social license, you know, renewed. You know, like you have to get a license renewed every so often. Well, so do do corporations, precisely because of consumers. I don't want to call you a consumer, but people like you, you know, who were aware of purchasing, said things. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead of that. And so corporations had to basically, you know, at least pretend or speak to the issue, you know, or pretend that they understood and that they cared and they hired ad agencies, and they had a little sustainability department hiring uh, graduate students out of, you know, some, you know, Arizona State or Princeton or someplace, and then they had this thing, and, you know, okay. That has changed. What, what I'm seeing now is corporations who, where the CEOs and other uh, in the C-suite, and obviously many of the employees get it. They just get it. They see it. And it shakes them up because they realize that they've landed due to their abilities and whatever as the head of a large corporation that does X, Y, and Z, but they have children or grandchildren, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, family, and they see they see the future that we're all looking at too, which is, oh my gosh, you know, and the weather we're seeing now is going to get much, much, much worse for the next 30 years. And there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. Until we hit net zero and start to draw down our greenhouse gas emissions. And so you're seeing Nestle, for example. Now it's a 150-year-old company. It's Swiss. It's the biggest food company in the world. Okay. And who did some really, really ignorant would be the kindest thing you could say, but really uh, unintelligent things with baby formula in Africa and plastic water bottles, you know, like, come on, guys. Yeah. They, they are now converting one million of their farms in their supply chain to regenerative agriculture. And they're serious. This isn't Bayer Monsanto's version of regenerative ag. They're serious. 600,000 of them are small holders in the cacao and coffee uh, wow. countries, you know, and 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 I I know the CEO very well, and wow. I know and why are they doing it? Okay, let's talk about why. You could say, well, they ought to, they should, they can, they could. This is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. 
and they're doing it pragmatically because they have been around for 150 years and they think that way long term say we're doing this to stick around this is our supply chain if we don't get involved with them to help them make that conversion to regenerative agriculture they won't be there they won't be producing the crops that we use to make our foods and so this is really interesting and so the things that you and I and others, so many of our friends and so forth have been crying for or decrying in the sense of don't do that, stop complaining, that's harming and so forth for so long and sort of like, oh, you know, you know, like frust it's frustrating. Now what you're seeing is movement in some areas where the people look at and going, you know, this is the right way to go. It We want to stick around. How do we do that? By being a regenerative company. And so they have budgeted a billion and a half dollars to these farmers to help them understand and to train them and to share techniques and practices with others, you know, so that they can make that conversion without, you know, risking their farm or risking, you know, their income and so forth, you know. So it's not like they're saying my way or the highway, you know, you do it regeneratively, we won't buy from you. No, they're saying we're your partner, we're working with you, you've been with us in many cases for three, four, five generations, the same farm, same company, we're here to work together. Let's figure this out together and let's make this transition to, so it's resilient to the extremes in weather in terms of heat and cold, you know, too much water, too little water. And I mean, that's what's happening to agriculture and, uh, and not to mention, you know, pests moving north and south accordingly because of the warming climate. So, the, so this is happening, you know, and it's emblematic, I think, of a deeper level of corporate realization. The fact that BP, Shell, and Exxon all pulled out of Russia, now that wasn't for climatic reasons. Can you imagine ever? I mean, that's about $50 billion they're writing off. They're just writing it off. We're out of there. We're not going back. I mean, wow. That, yeah. That's extraordinary. And we're seeing that kind of thing. Most of it you don't see. You didn't hear about Nestle, you know, but their yeah. motto internally is generation, regeneration. That's their motto. As you may or may not know, we've been sharing the benefits of saffron with our community for a little while now. Growing up in a Persian family, I'd been aware of the benefits of saffron because of its prevalence in my mother's cooking. But as we began on the journey to create our own line of saffron-based products, I began to learn the powerful science behind the plant. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years, and now the research is backing it up proving that just 30 milligrams of saffron per day is a natural source for enhanced emotional and physical well-being. At the fullest, we believe that incorporating ancient wisdom into our modern lives is one of the most powerful and accessible paths to healing. We also believe that everyone's journey is unique. So for our latest launch, we've created a line of saffron products in a variety of formats to help you curate saffron in your personal daily routine. Warm Feelings is our saffron latte powder and comes in individual sachets and in larger sustainable glass jars. Made with just certified high-grade saffron, organic coconut powder, and cardamom, it's the perfect coffee alternative and feel-good start to your day. 
If you prefer to pop a pill, Kinder Thoughts is our 30-day supply of saffron capsules and a super simple way to support your body and mood with the power of saffron. And if you're looking to strengthen your immune system, try our Mindful Immunity Syrup. This healing blend uses saffron to reduce inflammation, but also harnesses the power of an ancient Middle Eastern berry called barberries to fight infection, along with sea buckthorn and elderberries, all in a base of manuka honey to aid in antibacterial healing. It's a true immunity powerhouse. Honestly, at the moment, I'm using each of these products on a daily basis, depending on my needs. And to help you begin your own saffron journey, we're offering a discount of 15% off just for our podcast listeners with code the fullest podcast at checkout. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual. I, I did hear about General Mills, like hiring Kiss the Ground for something um, with what they're doing. And I, but I, yeah, I didn't, I mean, this Nestle and the piece of information you're sharing about Nestle, that's incredible. That's way bigger than what um, I heard from General Mills. Oh yeah. I mean, in General Mills, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's making Cheerios, you know, like really? Yeah. So yeah. It, I mean, Pepsi-Cola now, Pepsi is make regenerative corn to make high fructose corn syrup for soft drinks to cause diabetes and type two, you know, type two diabetes and obesity. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, so this is like sustainability of old, you know, trying to win brownie points, you know, but you have to get the top line right first, which is if you're selling poisonous ultra processed food, that's the first thing you should change. But creating the wrong ingredients regeneratively doesn't change much at all. And especially when their regenerative techniques often involve glyphosate, it's actually conservation egg, not regeneration. So, I mean, look at, I'm cynical about, you know, when somebody says we are X, you know, really? Uh, can you share more, explain more? I wanna know exactly what it means, you know? So it's not like I'm being spoon fed by corporate literature here. I just feel like at the same time, we have to recognize that these these companies are made of human beings just like you and me, and they have hearts just like you and me. And, you know, what I said earlier, but this is becoming experiential, not conceptual. It's like, oh, yeah, climate, I have a company to run. And now they go, wow, if I'm going to run my company or, you know, manage the company or be the CEO of this company, I am irresponsible if I do not take uh, what's happening to the world climate and people and place and water and oceans take it into consideration and integrate it into our actions in our planning process you know and that's that's the that's the shift you know and i love that and i don't want to go back to being cynical because i want to always end on like good notes and um but i have to ask you because there's that mentality that you're sharing that yes, there are people that are getting it now and they want to apply it and businesses are made up of people and people are inherently good and they do want to do the right thing. And so I go back to, and I don't want to make this like something about Bill Gates, but I'm going to, because I just want to ask this question because I know that he really believes in GMOs, like truly. And so 
he believes that that's the way that we're going to feed the world. And he has investments in companies that are, um, you know, make pesticides. And he is now apparently one of the largest owners of land. And so I'm just curious what your, um, what you think about meeting that mentality and that perspective that's being shared where it's, basically being said that there are too many people on this planet and the only way to feed everyone is with this type of farming and food. Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates is a curious one because he's one of the smartest people on the planet and he's also one of the least smart people on the planet at the same time. And so his decision-making process to me uh, is informed by uh, beliefs that he has that he thinks are his intelligence. And uh, I'll bet you Bill has never farmed uh, 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 100 square yards in his life, much less an acre, much less a farm. And I don't think he understands farming. And yeah. I, I don't think he understands what it means to be a farmer today. It's so interesting because, uh, and I know what you say is true, by the way, and so forth. I mean, and there is these kind of, you know, I mean, with all due respect, I mean, kind of Aspergery, intelligent, over-the-top people who see, see the world as things. And if you get the things right and change the things, you know, then that's technology, by the way, that you can fix it. And the thing is that he talks, he uses the word it, fix it. You know, I think, okay, Bill, what's it? He's talking about climate, we'll fix it. You know, like, okay, what's it? Because the climate, you know, actually is just a word. Where is it? Find it, point it out to me, show me it. I mean, it's, you know, so when you abstract the world like that, you know, then you are in deep doo-doo, in my opinion, uh, because you, have, you, you, you haven't walked the soil, you haven't put your hand in it, you haven't looked at what's happening, you know, to social structures and to, you know, in Africa, for example, where he does a lot of work and he cares very deeply and he and Melinda uh, before they separated, you know, did a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, public health in Africa and so forth. And so, you know, praise be to people who care about the world. When it takes the form of farming, I would say this, which is that it won't work. It's not like, oh, we're going to go this way. You go that way. We're going to go this way. We, we're going to choose the GMO ra- route. You guys go choose, you know, your hippie farming stuff, you know. And um, it's just not true. And regenerative farming works far better. It's far more resilient. It's more productive. It's more profitable. And it has all these ancillary positive cascading benefits, okay? I don't know who recognizes or realizes what, when, but look at it this way, Nikki. And this is the way I look at it, which is that the climate movement in the largest sense of the world, okay, uh, you know, of the word in, in the world, not something led by somebody. There's no charismatic male vertebrate going to come around. It's the movement that exists right now all over the world, you know, and NGOs and groups and individuals and schools and classrooms and people and, you know, the Sunrise Movement and, you know, but the Nature Conservancy as well. I mean, all over the world, there is a climate movement, all right? And it will become the largest movement in human history by far for one reason, weather. It's just inevitable. And so what happens when that occurs, and it is occurring, but will continue to occur and grow, is that when individuals or groups or, you know, 
collections of people, communities, whatever, when they face insurmountable obstacles, when they get into trouble, when they feel threatened, when they get it about climate or their own, you know, food and, you know, supply chains and this, whatever, what do people do? What do we do? What do we do when we get sick? We turn to people we trust who know more. Now, we turn to those people in the case of climate who I think are rehearsing the future. That's what you and your husband are doing. You're rehearsing the future. And so what could be seen as like, well, that's kind of an awkward choice or you do this or you buy what kind of clothes? You know, you're worried about microplastics royally, you know, you don't buy, you know. I mean, these things appear awkward now or sort of, you know, like, okay, well, you guys, you know, believe what you wanted to believe. The world is going to come around to understanding that it needs to act, live uh, in a way that will absolutely address, you know, the climate crisis and climate disruption and so forth. And that's when you get sea changes on all levels, institutional, community, political, et cetera. And so it's painful to wait for that or to be, I'm not, I'm not patient about it, I'm impatient, but it's painful to see that that's not happening as fast as it should, could, we want. It's not, of course. But that doesn't mean it won't. And so, um, and and I, you know, I, I I kid people sometimes, you know, because we say, oh, you know, tackle, fight climate change, you know, mitigate it. You know, I say, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to mitigate. And, you know, it's like it's like the, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> and, yeah. and and so what we're creating, what this conversation is about, and and thousands or more, there are tens of thousands happening every day, is creating those pathways and understandings, you know, where we are involved with something that we care about, that gives us juice, that juices our lives, makes it, gives us meaning and purpose. And that is what addressing uh, global warming does. That's what addressing the climate crisis uh, prov provides for us. It's a sense of purpose, of meaning. And the number one cause of depression in the world is lack of purpose. And if there isn't a better purpose in the world to regenerate the living world and everybody and uh, you know who lives upon it, everybody, you know, and that means us and all the creatures that live there with us, so forth. If that doesn't give you meaning, I don't know what does, you know. And if the crisis that we face um, isn't something that you want to deal with, then my question to you is, why are you here at all? I mean, it's almost like you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in any entity. You don't have to believe, but 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 this earth is sacred. And the fact is, global warming and the impacts of it are an offering. It's a gift. It's a tell. It's saying, look, this is feedback. This is your home. The climate and the biosphere are the same thing. And you are changing the biosphere. That's what causes the change in weather. Uh, and so forth. So, I mean, this is like, I don't mean the, 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 the floods and the harm that's ha happening are a good thing. They're a terrible thing. But the fact is, we're being nudged by this beautiful, beautiful planet we live on to actually understand the feedback and act upon it in any system that ignores feedback dies. And we're getting feedback every single day. And it's the kindness of the living world, you know, not the cruelty of it.
You keep going back to weather. And one question I have about that is geoengineering. I think that it's not talked about enough and a lot of people just don't know about it. And I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit about it and why um, and who is doing this. Like, is it one country? Is it a group of people? And um, my understanding of it is that it's the belief that what a, whatever they're spraying in the atmosphere is supposed to cool the earth. Is that right? Right. I mean, there are scientists. Um, I would say everyone I know of is male, which uh, is interesting, <laughs> uh, who propose or who seriously study geoengineering. Geoengineering, of course, is changing um, either the oceans or the atmosphere in such a way that it either blocks the sun uh, and th therefore heat from coming in uh, or changes the oceans in such a way that it sequesters more carbon, you know. And I mean, those are the main ways of geoengineering. And in uh, and, and the sky, it's e either sulfur, uh, uh, spraying sulfur dioxide in, in, into um, the atmosphere. And we know from uh, volcanic eruptions that, you know, huge amounts of sulfur are released and that the, that the whole atmosphere on the earth cools, you know, over the next year, two, three years, depending on the size of the eruption. And so we know that that does actually prevent heat from coming in. Uh, and the other way is to put up literally things that sparkle and reflect light back, you know. So are or, they spraying like, or like aluminum, right? Could be. I mean, it, it, who knows? You know, I mean, people have different ideas of what they should, you know, put up there. I don't think anyone takes that one seriously. I think sulfur is taken more seriously. Um, and, uh, but the, I, I don't really see a lot of uptake on that one, you know, on a larger level. We talked about electrification and we did a we did a research study in regeneration and we modeled how long is it going to take for us to swap out our world's energy systems from coal, gas and oil to uh, electrification from renewable energy. And so we looked at the International Energy Agency, the IEA data. We looked at McKinsey Global, their data, and they had been predicting the rate at which uh, renewable energy went down in cost and uh, and price, therefore, and the rate at which it was implemented and taken up uh, and installed. And they were wrong for every year for 20 years. Every single year they got it wrong. Every single year, McKinsey and the IEA underestimated uh, the rate at which cost fell and uh, uh, implementation rose. So when we did our research, we thought, well, what data shall we use? And we thought, we're going to use the data that's real. And the data that's real is the last 20 years. We just took that growth curve. And then we said, well, nothing has broken it so far. You know, not the recession of 2008 and, you know, not the pandemic of, you know, the COVID pandemic and so forth. So we just extended it. Uh, and we uh, said, like, by 2040, we can have net zero. 2040. 
Saul Griffith, who wrote the book uh, Electrify, uh, uh, his book actually was called, you know, in emergency break the break the glass, and he had, you know, a fire, you know, fire warning on it. And you know, he's a friend. I said, Saul, that's a really bad title. Call it Electrify, <laughs> and he because it's electrifying. Anyway, he is just a genius, genius physicist, and he's been doing work on this for years on carbon emissions and energy flows and so forth. And he includes nuclear, but he says we can go to net zero by 2037. So anyway, I'm sure there's other models and so forth, but that's approximately when we can do it. And what we know now, Nikki, is that when we achieve net zero, and we didn't know this before, we were told for decades from the climate scientists, you know, from the IPCC, that when we reached net zero, the atmosphere would continue to warm for decades, wow. decades after that point. And that essentially it would get warmer and beyond your lifetime, right? And maybe even your daughter's lifetime. So you go, I mean, a lot of people didn't really pay attention to that one, but you know, if you did, you go, okay, we're supposed to do all these Promethean tasks, change our car, change our home, change our heating, change our farm, change all these things. And actually we're never gonna even come close to benefiting from it. Really, you know? And I mean, that was the science. And in the sixth assessment, and prior to that, actually, it was announced that the science was wrong. And that within three to five years after emissions peaking, uh, warming stops. And if we have in place uh, the sequestration technologies, and I say technologies because it's called forests and grasslands and regenerative farming and kelp farms and oceans and so forth, you know, if we have those practices in place and we are sequestering more and more carbon, you know, through these different land-based practices and so forth, we will start cooling within three to five years. So we have, at our, we need to invent nothing to achieve that by 2037 or 2040, one generation. That's what means reversing the climate crisis. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't stop, we stop and say, ah, oh, go back to go back to normal. There's no normal anyway, but it means that we, and before we even get there, if we see we're getting there, that that's what we're approaching, that we're on hand and on deck, so to speak, with what's needed, even before we get there, we can start to see collectively as a civilization that we are ending the crisis. The crisis is that we're not doing anything about it or not doing enough to make it a difference. And that's the crisis, you know, but then we have the, the rest of the century to make it even better and better and better and better and better. And the last thing I'll say about these solutions in, in, in Nexus, I got back to it, I said, there's challenges and solutions. Challenges is like, the clear cutting and despoilation of the boreal forest, the largest carbon sink in on earth is the boreal forest. And, but when we look at these solutions and we didn't know about climate, we didn't know about warming, we didn't understand extreme weather or how it's being amplified, we would want to do every single one of these solutions because it makes a better life for 
the billions of people are here who actually can only think about current existential threat, today's job, income, their food, food security, their actually security period, their clothing, their warmth, their needs, their health. These are the people we need to address and help and work with. And this is what climate solutions do. It's not about, oh, this is a climate solution It's going to reverse global warming. Yes, they do, but what they do profoundly is create better lives for the children and the women and the men around the world who actually need more, deserve more. And this is what Regeneration is about. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. I love that message. And I, I think that's a beautiful way to end this the conversation. Thank you, Paul, for all that you do. I can't wait to look more on the website and, and see how else to support Reaching Drawdown. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I mean, you are exemplary on all levels of what one person can do. And, you know, you do it because you want to and because you love to, you know, and uh, you do it well. So that's even better. <laughs> thank you.